This is a nice episode after the last one. This... I really like this episode. Now I can understand why some people don't. I've heard from a few people, they're just like, Ah, what is this crap? Because, well, it's not really a Star Trek episode, is it? It's knocking over a casino with Star Trek characters. Mostly done in character, which is something I'll talk about in a minute. One of the other interesting things is, uh... There's no threat of the week. In fact, there's not really any threat, period. It's just an episode that's fun, of course, but it's also an episode that's about investment. I I tend to come across as anti, you know, there needs to be some kind of threat in an episode, mostly because of how much episodes tend to lean in favor of that idea. In virtually every episode, even in cases where I personally think there shouldn't be, there's usually some kind of threat to the ship, or threat to the station, or, oh my god, they're gonna die, holodeck malfunction, something, right? There's some kind of tangible threat. And that's fine, but in my opinion, that should be used carefully and within reason, not as the standard norm. This is one of an extremely small number of episodes where there is no actual threat whatsoever. Unless you count the threat to Vic Fontaine, which again makes my point. This episode is about investment. This episode banks on the idea that people, that is to say the audience, care. And in so doing, they're into the events that are happening, not because they're about to be killed, or, oh god, what horrible thing will happen if they die in the holodeck, they'll die for real. No, no, no. They care because they care. As I've said before, I feel that Season 7 was the season where we see creativity unrestrained. And I think this episode is a good example of that. Because sometimes it doesn't work out, and sometimes it does. It's also funny because this was a pet project of Iris Stephen Bear, which makes a lot of sense from what I know of the man. And as I've said before, while I don't agree with him on a lot of things, I will never doubt the man's passion and commitment. And this episode is a good example of that. One other thing I want to mention, though... This was in many ways inspired by and based on Ocean's Eleven. No, not that one. The 60s one. <laughs> I just find that interesting because if you look at the timelines, it's within the realm of possibility. I didn't actually look at the behind the scenes of Ocean Eleven, the newer one. But it's within the realm of possibility, given the timeline, that they had already started pre-production work on the newer Ocean's Eleven when they were actually making this episode. Go figure. Anyway, so the beginning shows up. And the first thing we see is the program's ignoring them. Oh, God, what do we do? And, well, okay, well, if we fix this externally, we'll have a yard. We'll, yeah, we'll have, it'll, it'll reset the program, and there's no way to do it. And they establish this point twice. They make the point clear that they can't just rejigger with the program or fiddle with the circuits or transfer them to a different holodeck or any of the other possibilities which exist. And let's be real for a second. There's actually a lot of ways they could have solved this effectively out of character. That is to say, from the Star Trek perspective, not from the Vegas perspective. However, they don't because that's the premise. The premise is they have to work through the, the game. I'm going to be referring to this episode as a video game many times, and I swear I'm doing that deliberately for once. So we find out very quickly on Kira Nog, both of whom obviously care about Vic and have personal interactions with him, as well as Bashir and O'Brien, who obviously also care, are the ones who are going to be the main thrust behind assi assisting Vic in de dealing with this caper of the game. We also find out Cassidy is involved, and uh, Esri gets pulled in as well. And 
we'll get more into that in a minute. But I mentioned that investment thing. This episode pulls a trick twice to try and ensure that the audience is invested despite the lack of threat. One is at the beginning they invite Vic to the Alamo program. You know, the program that they've never let anyone else join them in ever. So, basically a quick passive way of showcasing how much they care about Vic. The other thing they do is they have Cisco object, I'll get to that later, and then Cisco effectively turns his mind around and is like, okay, sure, I'll help, which was done as a way to try and, if Cisco can go with it, surely you can too, right? Now, Cisco does what I call his lockdown thing. Every time he has some kind of relationship trouble with Cassidy, he approaches it in the same way. I have a feeling Avery Brooks is uh, acting from experience there. Because he portrays it in a very specific manner where he just kind of, he just sort of locks down the conversation. Nope, we're not talking about this. I'll keep a smile on and I'll try to be polite, but I'm bristling with rage, so let's leave this alone. You know, that kind of a thing. Now, <clears throat> so they approach this fully in character. So it's like, all right, let's go in, let's start, let's start scouting out. Let's figure out the objective. Let's figure out our, our things. We know what the overall objective. The overall objective is to, to, to get rid of Frankie Eyes. Doing so will reduce, remove the jack-in-the-box of the program. Short story, or short side note here. Um, this is, in my opinion, the weakest part of the episode. Not the scouting out. That's actually awesome. No, the jack-in-the-box. I, I mentioned I'm going to be referring to this as a video game several times. That's because it is. And there's nothing wrong with that. I know this sounds very strange, because what I'm proposing is basically another step further away from the idea of the threat of the week, but I don't see why they couldn't have just done this for fun. And I know what you're thinking, what? Well, what would be the point of the episode then? Well, other than the aforementioned fun, which is the main point of the episode, it then becomes, you know, a, a fairly typical heist kind of an episode, but it also serves as a way of trying to, basically at that point, it becomes a way to kind of showcase more of Cisco as a character, since he's the one who has to be convinced and is pulled in over, over the course of the time. It doesn't really change the thrust of the episode, in my opinion, if you remove the threat to Vic. That's my point. I know a lot of you are going to disagree with me on that, and that's okay, that's fine, I get it. But I've said for years, I've said for decades at this point in time, since the 80s, I have said that the holodeck is a video game. It is a very advanced video game. And I've always found it kind of weird how they try to portray it as though it is not on Star Trek. If we're being honest, what O'Brien and Bashir do with the Alamo, or with the Battle of Britain, or... Oh, what was the other big one? There's several. I can't remember them all right now. That's playing a video game with a friend. Co-op. Why don't we just kind of accept that and embrace that and move on? I know I'm biased because I've been playing video games since I was four, but the point remains. Moving on. So Odo comes in. Now, there's this bit where he's just like flabbergasted staring at the burlesque girls. And I kind of find that funny because I have a weird feeling he's never actually encountered that before. In all the things he's encountered in his life, I don't think he's ever seen women in in those kind of outfits deliberately dancing in a provocative manner. So he's just like, what? And Kira's just amused by it. Nice touch. There's no drama here. Instead, Kira's just like, you go ahead and check this out. I'll check out the slots. And he's just like, what? But 
It's not like he's enticed. He's just, there's a curiosity there, like, what am I looking at? This is so strange. Wait, Kira? <laughs> it's a nice touch. Um, so they, so they, they, co they, they go around, they look what they're going to do. Um, I mentioned here that it's built like a video game. This is the first time I write that down in my notes. The first and most obvious way is because there's obvious weaknesses built into the characters. Frankie Eyes is ludicrously weak to Kira. You could say he's weak to women in general, but there's a lot of women about this place. No, he is, he just clunk, and he pretty much goes out of his way in order to straight up cheat at a blackjack table to ensure that she wins, just to schmooze his way into her good graces. Now I know this is the 60s, uh, I forget the exact name, 1960, I wrote it down, didn't I? I didn't write it down, did I? It's 62, I want to say. Anyways, point being, nah, it can't be 62. Anyways, sorry, I'm getting off topic. The relevant point here is that what he's doing is still a little bit much, and the kind of thing that probably wouldn't have happened even in the 60s, even in Vegas, even for someone who's with the Mafia, a made man, as they say. But it's okay. They need to have weak points. And I know that sounds like a strange statement, because you say, well, real-life people have weak points. Well, of course they do. But my point is, from a video game design logic perspective, if you make a boss with no weaknesses that you can never hurt, then that's bad design. So you give it weaknesses, you give it vulnerability phases, you make it so that you, the player, can do something to make it expose its armor a little bit. And that's exactly what they've done here with Frankie Eyes and with the idea of Kira. As horrible as this sounds, Kira, not a visitor herself mentioned this, Kira's probably very versed in this type of activity. You know, in trying to pretend to use her sexuality as a way to coerce and manip manipulate her way through uh, corrupt men, to put it as simply and bluntly as possible. Not that I can blame Frankie Eyes. I mean, that is not a visitor, but still. <laughs> I'm sorry. So they just, uh, So then, meanwhile, meanwhile, Odo uh, is going to get in good with Cheech, the main thug. And he does the, the, the arm stretch trick, which is it's just this nice little thing. And, of course, it's such a simple little thing. But Odo, as I've said before, actually does have a natural charisma to him. Mostly, in, it's not what you'd usually think of as charisma. It's more the, the pillar of iron kind of charisma. And so it makes sense that he would be able to impress and you know, get in good with the main thug rather than Frankie Eyes. So they start figuring out what's going to go on here and how exactly they're going to uh, get in. And they start talking about, okay, here's the overall plan. We figured out our objective now. We're going to rob the casino. You see why I keep calling this a video game? <laughs> this could also be a tabletop game. I could see this being a module in, like, D&D or uh, Cyberpunk, actually. I've done a lot of heist missions in Cyberpunk. Fun, fun stuff. I'm hoping there will be some in the game that came out earlier this year that I obviously have not played yet at the time of the recording. So they're going to rob the casino. So we start positioning. Cassidy starts getting good in with the guard. Odo manages to make sure that Ezri comes in, thanks to his connection to Cheech. And, of course, Kira, in a, in a rather amusing point, manages to manipulate Vic, or excuse me, manipulate Frankie to allow Vic to get Cisco in, although they don't know it's Cisco yet. It's all just positioning, making sure all the pieces are in the right position. It's, it's all fun stuff. And because uh, they, so, they need a high roller. This is when they start figuring out what they're going to do, and this is when Cassidy and Cisco have their scene. Now, I am white. <laughs> I know. Shocking. Um, you know, East European blood, for the most part, with a little bit of Lebanese. And uh, I uh, don't have the authority 
or personal experience to talk about the kind of things that people who are not white have gone through. However, this episode rather strongly and blatantly brings up this point. Now, what I, I was walking into this episode with only one word on my mind. Why? Like, I'm not saying that it's not a point that can't be brought up, and indeed it's a point that has been brought up more than once in Deep Space Nine. We had an entire episode about it, in fact. But why do it here, in what is otherwise just a big, lighthearted, fluffy, fun episode, all about investment in the characters? But then I rewatched the scene and the way the two argue, discuss, because they don't actually get to the point of arguing, the two discuss things back and forth, and I kind of realized, Cisco actually has a valid point. Hear me out. I know that sounds so condescending. What I mean by this is this is a point that I feel is worth discussing, especially in an episode about a video game. Hear me out. Historically speaking, well, I'm a big proponent of... Uh, I'm trying to think of the words. There's a term for it, like saving history, acknowledging history, not forgetting history. I'm also a pretty big proponent of romanticization. They might think, well, those are, t- those are literally the opposite things. Of course they are. I think there is room for both. And that is the argument that both of them are sharing here. Cisco's point is that we should acknowledge and, and accept and uh, not hide from the truth of history. And that's valid, and, and I agree completely. Cassidy's point is, this is a video game. I go in there for fun. This is something that is a romanticization of the circumstances of the time, and therefore is something that I'm doing for fun. You can kind of see how both of these aren't actually incongruent, that both can coexist alongside each other. Because you can still, let me use a direct example, uh, go and have a, what was it, like 1930s, I think, baseball game? Think about that. 30s, baseball, Cisco. Just put it together. You can't see. This is part of why this always bothered me in the past. Because you can't tell me Cisco doesn't acknowledge this. He's he himself uses holodeck programs that are romanticized. Bashir and O'Brien, of course, and all their war things. Those are heavily romanticized. Of course they are. And it, 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 just like video games are, with very very few exceptions, video games are designed to be romanticized because they're designed to be fun. They're designed as a way for us to enjoy ourselves, or to relax, or to vent, or whatever. It's supposed to be a positive influence in our lives. Now, again, I do think that can be taken too far. But I also think the other side can be taken too far, and that's kind of my point. This is a fascinating scene here, because, you know, Cisco is valid, and Cassidy is also valid. And I like the fact that the two of them basically meet in the middle and say, you're right, to each other. It's a nice touch. Final note, though. Vegas, historically speaking, is probably one of the most progressive states, states, listen to me, cities, but also states, when it comes to this kind of topic and actually accepting and embracing different people of different skin colors. And I found that's that's part of one of the reasons why this always stuck out in my mind. In fact, uh, they actually, I believe 1959, I want to say, is when they first really started pushing for you know black rights when it comes to Vegas in particular and Nevada in general. And I'm pretty sure that's where Black, uh, black History Month comes from, is Nevada. They're the ones who started that trend. Again, 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't acknowledge history. That's not the point. It's just Vegas, of all places, seems like a weird place to try and make that stand, you know. Getting back to the point. So Cisco and Cassidy have their good points next to each other. And then we run through the, the trial run. Now, this makes sense. Obviously, they're, they're planning out what they're going to do. For us, the audience, we get to see how things are supposed to work. This will show us, this not only just shows us how the heist should go, but then will show us a contrast for when we, when it doesn't go that way, because of course things are going to go wrong. It also serves as a nice way to pad out the runtime with this light little jazz number, which I swear is part of the DS9 theme converted into jazz. I could be wrong about that. I'm really bad about recognizing light motifs. Anyways. <clears throat> Good narration. Very specific patterns. He always he always orders this drink, and it always comes in at this point in time. It's always this thing. Video games. When when does this soldier turn this way? Well, at thirteen seconds exactly every time because he's programmed it. Um. So looking at my notes here. <laughs> they get to the part where they start discussing some of the specific things, and we find out that Bashir is going to give this guy. Epicat. Wow, that is mean. Have you ever had Epicat? I have. <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> so they all start practicing what they're going to do. Light little light jazz plays, and they do the big, you know, the walk of the promenade, which is a great shot, by the way. Great shot. Just yeah, we're going to do this. All right, let's make it work. Yeah, and they go in. <clears throat> Why don't they have ear comms? I know the concept of a communications device in the ear hadn't really become normal yet, but that is a thing. <laughs> like, you'd think the, that Federation would have something like that. In fact, they never have something like that. They have these things. Just food for thought, because it would have helped them to stay coordinated on this event. Instead, they all just keep checking their watches. Anywho. <clears throat> so they... <laughs> Sorry. I was just thinking, as weird as this may sound, as much as I love this episode, I kind of wish each person's roles had been more specifically tailored to their skill set. Esri is a bunny girl who carries a drink. Now, that being said, that's her designed role. In the end, she does manage to reverse psychology of the guy into taking the drink. So, she does actually perform something that she's good at, but it wasn't intended that way. You know, just, just little details like that. Anyways, <clears throat> so, naturally, they, they, uh, they, there's this nice little bit where Bashir is kind of the, let's call him the cornerstone of the entire plan. Multiple times, Bashir is the one who helps recover when things go bad. Now, that makes sense. He's genetically engineered, and he's kind of used to this sort of thing. I've said before, and I will say again, that he's probably the kind of person who should join Section 31. Which is, of course, amusing because in the Season 8 teaser thing they showed, he did finally actually join Section 31. So that's nice to know. Anyways, we also see Gowron in this episode. Well, you think I wouldn't notice? Playing the, the new accountant clerk, the guy who ends up drinking the Epicat. And Zemo, Mark Lawrence. I wrote down his name just to make sure. It was nice to see Mark Lawrence. This is towards the end of his career. But he manages to be just as intimidating as he needs to be. It's a nice touch. And... Well, I have one final note. Actually, two final notes here. First of all, you can notice the plan just kind of gets wildly and wildly more and more out of control as it goes along. 
But it's okay. They manage to adapt to it. And one of the biggest ways they adapt to it is Cisco just starts flinging money out into the air. Now, I want to, I want to talk about that because that is probably the final and most ultimate way in which this is a video game. That's not true. There's actually one more thing. The final way it's a video game is the moment the victory condition is reached, game over, you win. You know, you see the victory screen. But that's what, but that's connected to what I'm about to talk about. In a video game, Generally speaking, you don't care about what happens after the game is done. I mean, I know that's not necessarily true, and I know plenty of us still care about, for example, what happened to Shepard after Mass Effect 2. God willing, someday we'll get a Mass Effect 3. But the point being, you get the idea. You don't care, per se, what you do to get to the finish line, because winning is the goal, right? Now, this is funny to say this, because I usually have the exact opposite mentality. I'm the person who doesn't want to sacrifice his troops in an RTS game. Because, you know, I, I care about my troops, even though they're just units that don't even have names, right? But I've actually brought this up before many times, the difference between role-playing and role-playing. Uh, R-O-L-E and R-O-L-L. A role-player will be like, no, we have to make sure everything is, is positioned so that we still have money afterwards, and so... You know, basically you're portraying, you're going through it as if it actually is, and therefore you are invested enough to care about what happens after you hit the power button. If you are role-playing, R-O-L-L, all you're caring about is playing the game and achieving the victory. And as I've talked about many times before, I brought this up years ago when it came to Voyager. Um, worst case scenario, I believe, is the first time I came, brought that up in Voyager. Uh, I, I've been talking about this for years. There's nothing wrong with either playstyle, but I have encountered people of both playstyles many times in real life. So this is actually a kind of old hat to me to see this. But in this case, they're all doing the role-playing, R-O-L-L. All they care about is hitting that victory condition. And you'll notice the moment that Frankie Eyes and his crew leave the thing, it's right back to normal. It's interesting the way they portray this. And again, like I said, the final reason it's a video game. So then they do a nice little musical number, and it turns out Avery Brooks is actually a really good singer, go figure. And I have one last thing to say, because what they sing is, the best is yet to come. Now, this is amusing to me. This episode was actually filmed and designed to come before <clears throat> Inter Arma Enim Silent Legis. I looked it up. I'm not even sure how they pronounce it in the episode, because I haven't gotten there yet. But this episode was supposed to be uh, after that. Sorry, I said that in the wrong order. Inter Aji blah 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 was supposed to be before this. So it was supposed to go, you know, crap loss episode, and then Inter Section 31 episode, and then this, and then it was supposed to start the nine-parter that is the finale to the series. But by what is so the reason this was switched around is because they wanted to hit the February sweeps. They wanted this episode for that. But by what is complete and total coincidence, this actually works out very well. Because this says the best is yet to come. And then what happens after this is we have the ten-parter finale to the series. Enter Arma Enim Salad Legis actually manages to rather smoothly fit into the nine-parter in terms of tone, in terms of focus of the story, in terms of, of, of setting up and establishing. It's not directly part of the string continuity of the final nine, but it leads directly into the string continuity of the final nine. And thus, several people, myself included, have often considered the final ten rather than the final nine. I just find that amusing how that turned out to just kind of end up that way. So hopefully, 
I'll see some interesting comments this week and not people telling me I should die with sticks. But nevertheless, this was a really fun episode, and I really enjoyed going through it. I would love to play this game personally, especially with a bunch of friends. Maybe get a little payday action going on? I don't know. I'll see you next time, guys, for the finale, the 10-parter! <laughs>